think I was probably one in my younger years for the sort of, you know, everything happens for a reason cliche. And I don't believe that anymore. I think things just happen. Awful things happen to people because that's life. And I, I've sort of stopped looking for reason for why awful things happen. They just do and that's, that's just life. My name's Andrew Lee and welcome to The Good Life, a politics-free podcast about living a happy, healthy and ethical life. In this podcast, we seek out wise men and women who have lessons to teach us about living life to the full with humour, pleasure, meaning and love. We'll chat with musicians and athletes, CEOs and carers about making the most of this one precious life. If you like this podcast, please take a moment to tell your friends or rate us on Apple Podcasts. Now, sit back and enjoy the conversation. Louise Taylor is a Camilleroy woman from Sydney who moved to Canberra in the mid-1990s. She first worked with the ACT, Department of Public Prosecutions, as a family violence prosecutor, then with the Commonwealth DPP, and is now the Deputy Director of Legal Aid ACT. She's also worked with the Women's ACT Women's Legal Centre, uh, with the UNSW Indigenous Law Centre, and with the ACT Law Reform Advisory Council. Louise is a past recipient of the ACT Women's Award, and it's a real pleasure to have her on the Good Life podcast today. That's lovely to be here, Andrew. Thanks for having me. So tell me about your childhood. Which part of Sydney did you grow up in? Uh, I was um, mostly raised in the area of Millers Point, which if you know Sydney, you're perhaps more familiar with the area that people refer to as the Rocks. Um, But I have a a strong family connection to that area on both my mum and my dad's side. So Millers Point is kind of just over the ridge from there, right? You go up up that Argyle cutting and you get to the top of Kent Street. Yeah, yeah. It's a few streets um, that are all sort of connected, but it's that top part of the rocks mm. where there's a few pubs and um, mostly public housing in that area. And uh, so I have very uh, strong both sort of sentimental connections but familial connections to that area. My dad was born there and we, we spent a lot of my time there as a child. What did your parents do? Uh, well, my mum's uh, father was uh, a publican there. He ran the Captain Cook Hotel, um, which if people have spent any time in the rocks, no doubt they've popped into. It's one of the, the three or four in that area right up the top there. And um, and a tough pub to be running, particularly in the, uh, the period you'd be growing up. Yeah, uh, it was a tough pub to run. It was the early opener in Sydney at the time, one of the few, as right. I understand it, that had this 6am licence. So um, much of my childhood was spent listening to kegs rolling down to be delivered and it was a, a particularly popular pub on Anzac Day. The, mm-hmm. They would close the part of the street off and I have really strong uh, memories of, of Anzac Day and two up yeah. at the front of the pub. Um, but my father's family, my um, grandfather was a wharfie and my grandmother worked um, for David Jones. Uh, so she would walk up Kent Street, um, one of my... Strong memories of a, of a working woman um, in a professional sense. I'd not had anyone else in my family as a sort of professional working woman and my grandmother always did herself up and, and walked to work. I have memories of her doing that, which are lovely. And so my mum and dad met in my grandfather's pub. Uh, so they have some uh, lovely stories about their meeting uh, there. And so therein, I suppose, began a a connection to Miller's Point and to that area that I, I still have in my heart today. So that's 
that's where I grew up. I went to school there at the small Catholic church, St Bridget's, mm. um, and um, my um, friends and um, and others went to Fort Street, which was the public school at the top of Observatory Hill there. Did your parents uh, let you let you wander around the area fairly freely? Yeah, um, yes. And when I think back on it now, I think, gosh, we did have quite a lot of freedom. The nature of housing there is that it's small and backyards were a, a real luxury. Our toilet was in the backyard, so we, we didn't do a lot of playing in the backyard like... Um, kids now might. So much of our playing time or free time was spent um, in public space. Mm. Uh, So um, we sort of would gather as a gang of kids and then, you know, tell our mum and dad we'd be back in a few hours. And I I have a memory of it being a big place, but now that I look back on it, it was quite small and Mm. everybody knew who everybody was. Everybody knew whose daughter I was and who I was connected to. So you were fairly careful about not getting into too much trouble. Um, we were allowed to swim at the at the bottom of the the hill there at the wharf, an area we called the Met. Um, that was a local swimming hole for the kids. And is I, that Barangaroo now? It is, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, kid, must, we'd take. I, I wasn't allowed to go in unless my older brother was there, uh, and um, there was some you know rules about who did what. But there was lots of swimming in that area. Um, and I spent much of my time on roller skates moving up and down Kent Street and there was a recreational facility there that's now still there but it's very different to what it was when I was a kid called the King George which was a, a public recreational park that had supervision there. So I spent so much of my time there as a child during school holidays and, and other times when my parents would be running their business and we would spend all day there and walk there and walk home as a gang of kids from Millers Point singing the Miller's Point song, as we did. Uh, and it's a lovely sense of community and connection there mm. um, that that still now I see people from Miller's Point who know me as mum and dad's daughter and my grandparents' grandchild and that's their lovely memories and lovely connections to have. Does that change the way you parent? I mean, there's these sort of lovely statistics about how the concentric circles in which children are allowed to uh, to play these days have shrunk and shrunk and shrunk over the generations. Are you conscious uh, as, a, as a parent of allowing your children the sort of freedom that uh, your parents allowed you? I, I try to challenge myself around those things. I, th- I think... Um and, and my husband grew up in Willamaloo, so he had a very similar childhood to me in the sense that there was that freedom to move around a big city mm. um, as long as you had a mate with you and you had a time that you were meant to be home, you were okay. So we, we both sort of try and challenge ourselves around those things and um, extend freedom where we feel it's safe to do so. But I think we could probably do a lot more than we do. I'm, I'm not sure that working in the criminal law assists me to, to extend freedom imagine. where I should. I'm, I'm probably a little more cautious um, and suspicious than I should be, than, mm. is, than mm. is healthy sometimes. Um, but I, I think of my childhood and look at my own children's childhood and it's quite different in that, in that way, mm. that sort of sense of safety in numbers out in the community. And, and people tend not to... Um, be out in public space in our streets as much as they mm. were in the streets that I sort of spent my time in, I guess. Community you probably have a backyard like these days. Yeah, exactly. There's that opportunity. Um, I think I think at one point I probably, if I'd laid down, I would have stretched across our backyard. So <laughs> the idea of going out there to do anything um, was just not, not something we did. Whereas, yeah, we have a backyard and our, our kids enjoy that aspect 
of our home, I guess, in a way that I didn't as a, as a younger child. Now, Woolloomooloo isn't far from Miller's Point. Did you, did you and your husband know one another growing up? We did know one another growing up. Um, our fathers knew each other, so um, we we knew each other. In fact, um, my husband's father introduced my sister to her husband, if people can follow that. Um, so there's a, a strong family connection there. Mm. And I, I do have a memory of um, Joe, my husband, coming into our... Um, my parents ran the milk bar for a little while coming into the milk bar and buying lollies, a quiet and reserved boy. Uh, and um, we we sort of came into each other's lives at various points when our families mixed socially. Uh, our, our fathers ended up working together at some stage. So, yes, I do have a memory of him um, as, a, as a young boy and certainly my parents have some lovely memories of interacting with him in their shop um, when he was a little boy, yeah. Were you conscious of your indigeneity strongly as a, as a child? Yeah, yes, I was. Um, not not so much from a, a political sense as I, w- as I am now as an adult. I see my identity as an Aboriginal woman as sort of inherently political, the assertion of that identity as mm. well as sort of a, almost an inherently political act. Um, but as a child, I didn't have an appreciation of that. Um, I certainly was proud of it and embraced it. But it wasn't until I grew older that I appreciated, um, I guess the consequences are the wrong word, but the environment in which a fair-skinned Aboriginal woman asserts that identity is often confronting. Uh, And growing up for me meant a lot of questions around that identity and um, a lot of commentary around what I looked like in the context of that identity uh, and, you know, my academic capability in the context of that identity. Uh, And as I've grown older, I've become a lot better at um, handling that. Were you proud of your Indigenous uh, ancestry? Absolutely. Um, And as I... Was it always a source of pride? Yes. 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 I can't ever recall it not being. Um, And and so the, the definitive answer to that is yes. And as I, as I grew older and appreciated what I've described as sort of the political aspect of my identity, particularly in high school, um, as I grew more confident mm. um, with my capacity or in my capacity to deal with what was the inevitable challenge around my identity that comes with being fair-skinned, um, that, that pride was often overt and often... Um, in a in a almost um, daring people to sort of take me on about that, and I don't I don't feel that now mm. as I grow older. I'm much um, I'm much more um, comfortable not with who I am, but with being who I am in the context of the rest of the world. I don't feel a need to explain that to anyone anymore, or um, to. Um, I- interact with the confrontation that can come with that. That's somebody else's problem. It's not. It's not mine anymore. Whereas I sort of perhaps felt something of a crusade in asserting my Aboriginality and uh, as a much younger woman. Mm. And mm. I. I don't feel that um, obligation. Not from the perspective of being Aboriginal, the obligation to educate others around how somebody like me can be Aboriginal. Or yes. That sort of thing. I don't carry that anymore, and it's rather freeing to to find that space as an adult. Did uh, that assertion of your Aboriginal identity bring discrimination with it? 
I think it would be um, – I, I th- well, I feel like discrimination is a strong word in terms of the consequence of people's um, response to my Aboriginality, but it, it certainly brought with it a whole range of stereotypes and commentary that were un- – commentary that was uncomfortable, mm. like, you know – but you're very smart or you're lucky you don't you don't have to identify, you're lucky you don't look Aboriginal, you can pass, all the sorts of things that um, go with people's ignorance around Aboriginal identity and what it can be or what it's not and what it is. So slurs on Indigenous people as a group. Yes, and, and me like having you. some sort of luck as being able to separate mm. myself from mm. that if I wanted to. Um, yeah, I think that was... That was a, a difficult, um, at times, a difficult road for a younger woman to navigate and I, I don't feel like that anymore, which is very nice. Did you ever struggle for acceptance within the Indigenous community? No, I can't say um, that that's something I've ever yeah. um, suffered yeah. with. Um, I'm, I'm certainly always prepared to identify who I am and where I'm from and um, uh, where my connection is mm. That's and that's a... You know, it's a common way that Aboriginal people interact with each other in terms of just working out who's who. And um, I, I think Canberra in particular, because I've, I've been here for over 20 years now, um, Canberra in particular is, um, is used to having a whole range of Aboriginal people from a variety of places. Mm. Uh, and so that, um, that diversity in identity um, brings with it those conversations that happen around who are you and where are you from and we're not there's a lot of Aboriginal people here who aren't Ngunnawal people and so that's lent itself to there being great communities of support and acceptance Mm. I think Mm. and I've always enjoyed very warm very warm welcome and acceptance on Ngunnawal country and and being able to play a role in the Aboriginal community here has been a very satisfying aspect of my time in Canberra. That's really good to hear. So when you grow up in the, what I think of as almost the quintessential Sydney Sydney childhood, right in the heart of the, the heart of the city, uh, uh, running running amok with your friends, what made you uh, leave to uh, to come to Canberra? Why didn't you go study at uh, Sydney University, UTS, uh, UNSW? Often, I often wonder what my life might have looked like if I had done that. And my um, dad took up some work here at the end of my schooling time in Sydney, in my high schooling. And um, I had originally thought that I would remain in Sydney to go to university and I had an um, older sister and older brother who remained in Sydney. They're a little bit older than me, so they were finished school when mum and dad moved to Canberra. And I think I miss my mum and dad too much. So I, fi- yeah. I finished year 12 and um, by luck I got accepted to ANU to study law and so it just seemed a natural thing to come and um, live at home again. I'd, I'd lived with my mum's sister for a little while while they... My mum and dad moved to Canberra so that I could remain in Sydney um, and finish my schooling there. So it was nice to sort of come home to the extent that I was living with mum and dad again and able to study here. And um, I was always quite determined to return to Sydney after I finished university, but I, I um, by luck, walked into some work that I really enjoyed and here I am 20 years later. So when the strength of family has come up uh, so many times in, uh, in this conversation so far, is that why you then uh, turn to, to, to work on the issue of family violence because of the importance of family to you? Uh, I mean, it's a, it's a terribly 
tough and confronting area to uh, to, to work on, particularly as uh, uh, not long after after law school. Yeah, it. Um, I, I can't say it was a deliberate choice. It was certainly. I, I firstly moved into the area of general prosecuting, and that. Um, for me, studying law was always about going to court, and mm-hmm. so um, criminal law was the obvious place for me to land with that goal. So, um, moving into prosecuting, and then the opportunity came up to do this more specialist role um, in family violence, and it, it felt um, it felt to me like a place where I could make a contribution. And looking back on my career now, I've always been the happiest in roles where I'm. I feel I'm making a contribution and there's an mm. outcome for that contribution. Um, so it it was work that I found really fulfilling and rewarding uh, and um, I, I suppose sat um, starkly against the family background that I'd had, um, which wasn't marked uh, by family violence um, at all, luckily for me, um, but I, I suppose I looked at it through the prism of my own luck and fortune mm. to to know that it shouldn't be like this for anyone else either. But that it, but the reality is that it that it was, and I was able to make a small contribution to the criminal justice response um, to family violence, which at the time um, was was leading practice in Australia and quite quite something. Um, fortunately, other jurisdictions have followed. But at the time, the ACT was really doing some groundbreaking stuff in relation to family violence and policing of it, investigating of it and prosecuting of it. And I found that part mm. also really rewarding. Were there particular victims who uh, stay in your memory? Yeah, there. yes, there are. I mean, you deal with um, probably hundreds of victims, mostly, mostly women and children. And there are particular cases, sort of the facts of them that stay in your mind, but there are absolutely um, particular victims that, that stay with me and uh, on occasion I think of and wonder how they are and where they mm. are and whether they manage to um, move on with their life in a way that meant violence wasn't part of it, whether with that partner or without that partner or with a new partner. Um, and every now and then I have occasion to run into somebody that I that I uh, interacted with in that role and only recently I was able to do that through the work I'm doing now. And it was... Um, it was heartening to reconnect with someone who had managed to to pull herself out of a really awful and violent situation, not at not at precisely the time I was mm. um, dealing with her, but it it was it was lovely to hear that some little time after I had had some um, some interaction with her through prosecuting uh, crimes that had been committed against her, she was able to see that it wasn't the life she wanted to live. Uh, and uh, she said to me actually that I'd said something to her about my fears for her her children should she remain in the relationship that if her partner was prepared to treat her in a particular way, the extension to the children perhaps wasn't long off. Right. And she said that... That, it, that he might then do do to the children what yes, he'd done to, done to and, and treat her in the sort of demeaning and degrading way, so yes. treat them in the demeaning and degrading way that he had treated her for a long period of time. And uh, she said that um, a year or so after I had made that comment to her, she noticed the degrading comments and Mm. some of the treatment that she'd received at his hands uh, extended to them. And it it was what then motivated her to really think about how she could change her life. And she she was successful in leaving him and um, moving on with a life in a way that wasn't marked by violence. Mm. And so it was... 
it was really nice to see someone again in a different stage of their life and hear that um, she had been able to do that and hear that um, that the experience she'd had had meant that that she'd started to think about her life looking differently. And she hadn't been able to enact that immediate change at the mm. time and often people in crisis can't and, um, you know, to expect them to at a time of crisis is often too much. But that with time and support she was able to do that. Because you often wonder when you do this work, you see people at a real snatch, snapshot in their life, which is often marked by that crisis that mm. violence sees people in, you often wonder um, whether the intervention that the state imposes upon them through um, criminal charges, whether that, it, whether that does help them um, for longer than just the period that the state is involved in it, if, if that makes sense. Yeah, and, yeah. And so every now and then it's nice to see that somebody's life was able to, to change for the better for them. And did you feel that you saw cases sometimes where you thought actually maybe this person's life would have been better if, if we'd never never gotten involved? Yeah, I, I, yes. The answer to that is yes. And it's something in the work that I do now with legal aid that I'm constantly wrestling with actually. Yeah, yeah. Um, after years of doing this work, I have, I've come to the strong view that the criminal justice system is not changing lives in the way that we would want it to for a whole variety of reasons. Mm. I, I don't say that pejoratively. It's asked to do a great many things uh, and often that expectation is unfair. Um, and so I've, I'm, I regularly think about it from a sort of policy and perhaps philosophical perspective. Is this great hand of the state that, that uh, intervenes in people's lives? And rightly so. We, have, we had to come to a position as a community where family violence was a crime, mm. that it was investigated like any other crime and that, that people were supported to report it like a crime. I'm... I'm not suggesting that that's not the approach, but I do wonder when it's all over yes. how much we've assisted people to change their lives. And I say that from the perspective of both victims and perpetrators. Um, and I, I often wonder whether people, if they had their chance again, would call the police for assistance again. And I think yes. in the debate and the discussion around family violence, we really need to come to grips with the complexities of that question um, We've sort of developed the debate and it, it seems well accepted now that it is a crime and it's unacceptable and um, nobody sees it as something that anyone should put up with, but we need to extend the debate now to talk about the complexities mm, and nuances mm. of it. And I know you've uh, spoken in the past about one of the saddest things you, you see is where um, someone imagines that the best possible life they could have is as a victim. Uh, yes. And that, uh, that, that difficulty of someone whose who's entire outlook on life has been reshaped by the violence they've been subjected to. Yes, and I think that's one of the saddest aspects of the work when you, when you deal with people who can't envisage a life that doesn't include violence. Mm. Um, and often... In some cases, that's because they've never lived a life that didn't include violence. And sadly, often um, the, the intimate or, or uh, former intimate or ex-partners that are perpetrating that violence against them, they haven't lived a life without mm. violence either. Mm. And so we've, we've got this cycle that's just churning people through it. Um, and I can't see a criminal justice system arresting that issue um, I don't mean arresting in the sense of arresting people, although yeah, I don't yeah. think that, that necessarily works either, but we, we have to come to grips with the investment that's required from a prevention point of view if we truly want to fix this. 
because whilst sending people to jail is, is the answer in terms of keeping people immediately safe and punishing people, um, it's not the answer I see as having the rehabilitative effect that people might like it to or people would expect that it, yes. that it does yeah. have. Yes, and I found, uh, I mean, if you want to uh, generate a feisty debate, sometimes uh, uh, ask people uh, of, uh, uh, good, with good progressive values what they think about the government spending money to provide housing for perpetrators yes. of family violence. Yes. Uh, and that immediately generates a sort of sense of visceral deep dis- yes. dis- discomfort, uh, even if people can intellectualise that that might, uh, might, might provide better support. Yes. It just... It just feels wrong yes, to many people. Uh, it does. And that I, I suppose, Andrew, that's what I mean when I talk about we need to move to that next level of the discussion that's a more sophisticated and nuanced mm, one mm. because and we can't fix this without engaging perpetrators. We, mm. we can't um, possibly make people safer without engaging with the people who are making them unsafe. Mm. Uh, and um, I, I understand... Um, why that is confronting for some people but the the solution to this is not just telling mostly women um to report the violence against them we've we've we are smarter than that we can be smarter than that and i think we have to be if we really want to uh, put a dent in this enormous problem Uh, for a listener who has a friend who's the victim of family violence what would you advise them to to say to their friend what would you say to a, to, to a friend who was, uh, was, was in the midst of uh, family violence? I would uh, offer as much practical support as I possibly could, um, which would be, you know, respite, call any time of the day or night, yeah. um, I'll come and get you or, um, you know, arrange the sort of practical things that might assist you. I, I hesitate, Andrew, because... My experience tells me that unless people are ready to hear something, they won't hear it. Mm. And so, um, of course, you would encourage someone around um, how they deserve not to live with violence and abuse, how they are worthy of a life that's not marked by this. But one of one of the um, the shortcomings, I think, of the discussion around this is that often you are dealing with people who rightly or wrongly, are in love with the person that's treating them poorly. Uh, And that can and is complicated by um, children and the interconnectedness of people's lives and Mm. the practicalities which women are often very good at going to. You know, I can't possibly do that because the children play sport on Saturday and if I leave on Friday, it's my experience is that victims think like that because they think about what their life what the consequence for their life is if they finally say, actually, I'm, I'm done with this and I can't mm. do this anymore. And it's not just a matter of the physical, you have to leave, you have to go. It's the other things that happen in people's lives that complicate it for them. What do they do with pets? What do they do with the family dinner they host at the house every Thursday night? Or the sort of things that people's lives tick along with mm. that don't mean um, that they that they don't love the person that's doing this to them, they just want the violence to stop. And that was a common theme no matter um, where the victim of violence came from, their cultural background, their professional background, their education background. They often didn't want the relationship to end, they just wanted the violence to stop. Mm, mm. And um, 
we need to accept that for many victims, they want their life the way it is now. They just don't want it with the violence in it. And so um, going back to your question about what would I say, I, I suppose I would um, try and impress upon that friend the options available for that support uh, and that, that she can't change the relationship on her own. The, viol- the violence stopping, the responsibility for that rests with, with the person perpetrating it. And if there's no willingness to or insight around that, mm. um, then she can't do it on her own. And I, and I, I think that's one of the, the problems with sort of, you know, creating um, sort of this evil narrative around usually men who perpetrate violence is it then doesn't create the space for perpetrators to say, actually, I need help, I've got a problem, mm. um, in, a, in a soft way that wouldn't see police intervention, for instance. We're, we've, I fear we've created a, a, a space that instantly demonises perpetrators, as it, as it should, in the sense that it should, um, shouldn't condone their behaviour and it should be very clear that it's not acceptable. But we do need to create a space that allows men who are struggling with the use of violence to say so in a way that allows them to get support and assistance. And that, to me, would be that sophisticated response yeah, that I talk yeah. about. Yeah. No, it's deeply hard to do, partic- and particularly, I guess, uh, in the area that you're a real expert on, on uh, Indigenous family, family violence, where there's so much sort of cultural stereotypes that can that can be brought to bear. And... Um, I don't know if you've got, you've got views on the, on this uh, uh, suggestion that sometimes made that Indigenous women are uncomfortable talking about fa- family uh, family violence um, because of the notion that it might stereotype Indigenous men as as, as being sort of uh, all 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 violent violent perp- perpetrators. I don't I don't I've never um, seen any reluctance on the part of Indigenous women to speak about family violence as a, a problem in our communities. Um, I think I think when Aboriginal women speak about this issue, they are certainly conscious of um, the interaction our people have with the state and the criminalisation um, of much of the behaviour of Aboriginal people. I think um, Aboriginal women are almost... Inca- it's impossible to talk as an Aboriginal woman without having that in the back of your mind. Mm. Um, I, I guess I would reject the idea that or the suggestion that Aboriginal women aren't talking about the violence that's perpetrated against them. I've often responded to that suggestion that it's actually just people aren't listening to Aboriginal women or, or aren't seeking out Aboriginal women as sources of commentary around this issue mm. because there's a great number of, um, of Aboriginal women around the country who've written and spoken and working at the coalface of this issue um, who are rich sources of commentary and information about not only the problem, of course, but the solutions um, that exist for uh, Aboriginal women in our community. So um, I think there's plenty of great Aboriginal women talking about the issue. People just need to, f- to work out who they are and mm. listen to them. Uh, Louise, you're at uh, Le- Legal Aid ACT now. Well, what do you find the most rewarding part of, uh, of your work there? Oh, um, I, uh, I've been at Legal Aid almost five years now and I absolutely love it there. I'm very lucky. It's not, in fact, there's not many days in my career where I've ever woken up and dreaded going to work. Um, but in particular, I've, I feel like I've found a, 
almost a, I hesitate to use the word, but almost a spiritual home at Legal Aid. It feels like the work um, that I've that I've or that I've always been meant to do. Um, so we assist people in a whole range of areas. Um, I I still practice in my role as deputy CEO, so I, I still do a fair amount of criminal work. But I um, have oversight of our family law practice as well and um, assist with the management of our general practice, which does a whole range of mm. things. Uh, closest to my heart, of course, is um, we have a specialised domestic violence unit there. So we we are Canberra's largest practice for that area of law and we assist a great many people seeking support um, by taking out an, an order against someone who's using violence and abuse against them, mostly women. Uh, and we have some fantastic lawyers at Legal Aid. It's one of those places um, where there's this lovely sense of a collegiality, which I've had in other workplaces, but it's bound up in this collective philosophy around the importance of Legal Aid that is shared across the Commission. And mm. there's something about being part of a, of a, a picture that looks like that uh, and coming to work in circumstances where you know your colleagues share that philosophy uh, and that, uh, I'm proud to say, underpins much of the work we do and the service that we provide to the community. And uh, with um, my CEO, we've worked really hard in the last five years to really focus on the frontline services that we provide. And I feel... um, really satisfied if someone in the street says, oh, I was I was at a legal aid outreach clinic or I went to a forum and legal aid were presenting there. We've really tried to get to places in the community that we had struggled in the past to get to, interact with communities that we hadn't mm. been particularly mm. successful in interacting with. Uh, and that's been extremely rewarding um, as a senior person there to see our, um, our people really get on board with the vision that we've had over the last five years to to really get out there and get in the community and um, access the most vulnerable people who need our support and assistance. What's your philosophy for man- managing other lawyers? I mean, lawyers are mm, sort of yes. stereo- stereotypically <laughs> type A-driven person- yeah. personalities. Uh, how do you get the best out of your team? Uh, I trust um, that my team share that philosophy uh, and I, tr- I, I suppose I can trust it because I see it. One of the really rewarding things about working at Legal Aid is the, the sort of eclectic mix of lawyers that work there. We've got some people who've worked there for a very long time and are um, incredibly um, rich sources of guidance and knowledge and information and they're incredibly important people to have in a workplace like Legal Aid. And then we have this wonderful band of, um, I, I hesitate to say junior lawyer because that doesn't quite describe their skills and experience but younger less experienced Mm. lawyers um and not always young in years we've we have a couple of lawyers who volunteered with us for instance to start with and then became practicing lawyers who went to the law late in their life uh and and so working with people in those beginning years of practice is just so rewarding watching watching them develop as practitioners and um, gain confidence as practitioners and their willingness their willingness to assist their clients in a way that sees them, I mean, it sounds like a cliche, but it's so true, go above and beyond what they should. Um, I can confidently say that the ACT community is really, really well served by uh, the lawyers at Legal Aid. 
Um, and they must make mistakes and need sure. guidance. How do you uh, how, how, how do you, how do you craft them? Do you have sort of a, uh, a re- regular weekly meeting with each of the people you're responsible for? Uh, do you <laughs> that, try? Do you sort of drop 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 in on them unexpectedly I and do. see how they're going? Part of the um, method behind. Um, my maintenance of my own criminal practice is it means that I'm in court very regularly observing Mm. and watching. Um, Catching up with each of them weekly would be a luxury. It would be impossible to do that given the caseloads many of them carry Mm. in terms of being able to carve out the time. And I had found over the years, in fact, that having that as an expectation just puts pressure on people because inevitably it ends up cancelled or being moved and you're Mm. constantly chasing your tail about that catch-up. So we have regular practice meetings where we meet as a group. Um, I am um, constantly chatting with them about their matters and what's happening with them, where they're up to, what their approach is going to be. And there are a couple of other um, very senior criminal lawyers in our practice as well who are very generous with their time and mm. um, experience. But I've, I've found the best – one of the best things is to be there with them, um, watching them in court. They know I'm there if they need to ask a question or seek mm. some guidance mm. or I might say afterwards – I saw you do this submission, it was really good, but next time I think you should try it this way or you could have put that in. And um, you know, lawyers are, particularly advocates, uh, are um, fairly confident and, my experience, mostly resilient. And so that capacity for feedback often they're actually very hungry for and they, mm. they, mm. Want, that, um, they want that feedback from, from people who may have been doing it a little bit longer. So I really enjoy that aspect of it. We get our fair share of complaints as any frontline service does and so that that can often present as an opportunity to go through somebody's work as well and um, if we've made a mistake it's always my approach to say we made a mistake, I'm very sorry it shouldn't have happened, how can we fix this, what can we do for you? Yeah but that's interesting to also think about using that as an opportunity to uh, engage with the the staff member and make them a better lawyer as well. Yes. how do you deal with the sort of what must be at times pretty emotionally harrowing aspect to the work? I remember a, um, a colleague who was a former prosecutor uh, once saying that after you've prosecuted a few child abuse cases, you'll never again let your child do a sleepover. Uh, how do you uh, uh, soften uh, soften yourself and engage with your with your kids when you uh, uh, when you come home from dealing with what must be pretty raw material at times? Yes, it's something um, people ask quite a lot actually when they um, when they um, hear the sort of work that I do. I'm I'm quite lucky in that um, I've never taken my work home with me in my head, if that makes sense. Mm. I've often taken work home, but I've always had the capacity to switch off, and I think that's been very lucky. And I recognise not everybody does. We're very mindful of that, and I'm. I hope that people that work um, with us know that they can um, they can debrief and raise issues that they might be having. I'm always conscious of the type of work that I allocate to lawyers so that they're not getting a particular type of work over and over again. Yes. Um, so that you, I mean, you you always have a sensitivity to the work, but there's a there's a problem if you're seeing it in your head all the time. And there's been cases where that's happened for me, and I've needed to step away and spend some time away from that case uh, and there's also a problem if it doesn't affect you in a way I mean if, if mm. it's not having any impact on you at all in the sense that you're not able to see for instance the extremes of the behavior that you might be dealing with or how bad it is um, 
and it, in fact towards the end of my time doing family violence work I was sort of honest enough with myself to know that it was time to step away. This is prosecuting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, yeah. it, it, um, I did feel as if I was developing almost an immunity t- to some of the behaviours and you'd sort of go to categorising it in your mind in a, in a way that probably wasn't healthy. Mm. Um, so I was, I was able to say this is not for me anymore and it needs fresh eyes and I need to go and do some garden variety <laughs> prosecuting and I, and I did do that and it was good for me and it meant somebody else could come in fresh and do the work. Um, so I, from my own perspective, um, if I find the work creeping into my head at times when it, it ordinarily wouldn't, that's a good uh, marker for me that I need to um, do do some things that, that see that material process and go out of my mind. Mm. There is no doubt, hearing what you the comment you attributed to your friend who was a prosecutor, there's no doubt, as I um, referred to earlier in our chat, that it impacts not certainly not the way I interact with my children, but it impacts your sort of antenna for risk, mm. I think, mm. and perhaps a tendency to, to be a little more risk-averse than I might otherwise be if I didn't do that work. Um, when my eldest daughter was younger, we would... Uh, joke that on her first date I would sort of be in camouflage gear <laughs> in the bushes <laughs> demanding criminal histories from people and I'm pleased to say that didn't happen. Um, What's the Bruce Willis movie where he does, that, does this? I can't. I, <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. yeah, I can see it in my head. Yeah, exactly, but, um, exactly. That's you, that's, that's you in the next yes, car. Yes, <laughs> I, I, I think she's always very um, conscious of my need for information and who and what and when and mm. um, she's... She's respected that over the years. I'm sure it's been tedious at times and I've younger children who'll no doubt um, experience that as well. But it's also that that interrogation of self around, hang on a minute, is this, mm. is this rational? Mm. Is it reasonable? Uh, and I hope I'm mostly rational and mostly reasonable. Uh, Louise, what advice would you give to your teenage self? Oh, um... That it'll be all right, I think. If I could talk to my teenage self, I would say to her to, to chill out a bit and um, everything will be all right. It will work out in the end. I think I, as a teenager, I worried about what what I would do and where I would head. Um, and in fact, life just, for me, luckily delivered me to places that have seen me in fulfilling work, in a you know, loving and supportive relationship with great kids you know that's not to say that it's all perfect all the time it's not but um I think I would just tell my younger self to chill out a bit what's something you used to believe but no longer do oh um I think I was probably one in my younger years for the sort of you know everything happens for a reason um cliche and I don't believe that anymore I think things just happen, awful things happen to people because that's life. Um, And I've sort of stopped looking for reason for why awful things happen. They just do and that's that's just life. Yes, it seems to be one of the more unhelpful things that someone can say to somebody who's suffered a tragedy that, that it's all happening for a reason. Yes. And I think seeing as my work has led me to seeing people in terrible crisis and grief arising from um, 
you know, random acts with no rhyme or reason, no explanation or mm. it's no certainly no explanation for why them, why then. Mm. Um, it just is what it is and life can be particularly brutal and searching for meaning by saying, you know, everything happens for a reason I think is, yeah, I don't find that particularly helpful at all anymore. Whereas mm. I think my younger self might have searched for some meaning behind it or, yes. yeah. you know, You'll, you'll see in the end why this happened and, in fact, from the many things you'll never see in the end why it happened, it just happened. Are you less religious now than you were at the, at, as a child? Oh, yes, yes. I, um, my um, my mum is a very loyal Catholic and my dad's not religious at all. He still drives her to church most Sundays and sits outside and reads the paper. Um, That's kind of beautiful. It is lovely, yeah. He's... Yes, my mum's faith has been incredibly important to her, uh, and as but a also young, that he supports yes, her in, in that way. Yes, yeah. yes, that's um, it's typical of their marriage, actually, which yeah. is lovely. Um, and so her faith was um, was something that guided us, I suppose, as younger children. Mm. We went to Catholic school, we went to church. I was an altar girl. I used to commentate, tell people what hymn we were up to, and. I loved that aspect of church actually, getting up and being able to read aloud and um, no doubt that set the scene for my move into advocacy as an adult, <laughs> that sort of having the room in the palm of your hand, what hymn are we singing next and yeah. I got to tell them. Um, and so I went through the usual sacraments and rituals that Catholic children do and I would refer to myself now as a retired Catholic, retired mm. for many years. Uh, but that's not to say that I can't see some of the wisdom and beauty in um, in the principles of Catholicism and Christianity and, you know, um, adhere to some of the lovely guidance that those religions can provide in terms of how you treat people. And mm. um, But but my mum um, remains a, a lonely figure, I suspect, and will do for some time at, at Mass on Sunday. So I'm. The, that's the long answer to your question. The short yeah. is, yes, I'm much um, less religious than I was as a younger woman. When are you most happy? Um, I'm most happy I, for a couple of weeks every year. My husband and I pack our children up and head north. And when I think of happiness, I think of this time in our life we spend a couple of weeks uh, up in the hills around Ballina and... Mm really switch off from life, from the routine of school and work and um, I give myself permission not to read my emails and not to answer work-related things and if I had to identify a time when I'm most happy, mm. it's that period of is that, just... Is that Kimilora country? It's not. It's Bundjalung country actually. Okay. Um, my husband's a Bundjalung man so we, um, we're on his country but it's a beautiful part of the world and um, we stay... We stay up sort of away from the crowds and go down to the beaches and mix with the masses and then go up to this little house and um, spend the afternoons reading or just hanging out by the pool. And um, I really find that time restorative where my children have complete access to me without any mm. distractions and, um, and we just really be with each other as a family. We don't do anything particularly exciting and we tend to go to the same places and drink the same coffee and um, <laughs> we're creatures of habit like that. But it's just this period of our life that we commit to each year that 
feels like it sets us up for the rest of the year. That's not to say I don't have a happy moments. I have lots of them. But yeah, yeah. when I think about when I'm most happy, it's being able to um, cut the, the shackles of real life away for that period. It's lovely. Are there things you do during the, those breaks in order to connect the children to Bunjalung country? Yeah, so my um, husband, um, his family uh, have connection to a small community just outside of Grafton called Bayugal, most famous for its um, connection to asbestos, sadly, in many ways. But um, he takes that opportunity to, to take our children um, to that community and be on country and he has family up in that area. So mm. um, it's a nice uh, – it's always the beginning of our holiday, so it's a nice way to begin yes. and then as we drive home, it's a nice way to end on that connection to family and country note for them. Yeah. 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 Are they um, – do they think of themselves as Bunjong children, Camilla Road children, Ngunnawal children? Oh, I think – well, how, you'd how have to the, talk to them identity? about that. They're um, – they would think of themselves as Bunjalung Camilleroy children, okay, um, right. as as um, as very proud of their Aboriginality, um, and still, um, well, not still, but but discovering aspects of their Aboriginality that that they enjoy expressing and uh, articulating, and um, that that capacity to connect with their dad's country and people mm. in that way is really important part of that. What's the most important thing you do to stay mentally and physically healthy? In Well, in recent years I have discovered running. So um, just before my 40th birthday um, I decided I needed to get a bit, um, bit healthier than I was and I started out by walking um, with, a, with a friend who'd signed up for the, I think it was the Canberra Centenary 50K walk and... Um, I just went along on her training walks and I remember walking, I don't know, I think it was about 13 kilometres the first time and just nearly dying and I was just thinking, oh, my God, I can't believe how unfit I am. And it just became this um, habit really mm. and that and that I, as we began to walk longer I thought well, maybe I could run because it's quicker. It's just quicker to get it done. <laughs> so... Um, she, with the with the support of her as somebody who had run throughout her life mm. um, and is one of those incredibly positive, um, really motivate. I find her a really motivating person, keeps me accountable for when I say I'm going to get up at six and go for a run. And, of course, with the support of my partner um, for me to be able to go and do all these things, I was able to find this, this hobby, I guess, that um, I find really... Um, good for my head and it's, it's obviously good for me physically and uh, this friend Mel um, just signs us up for things and we train for them and um, we're not very fast but we're certainly committed and um, much of it's trail running so it's not I find the road running after a while a bit tough on the body mm. but the trail running getting out in the bush in Canberra when it's still and quiet and all you can hear is the loud sound of your heart thumping in your ears and your breath puffing in and out and the tap of your shoes is something I find almost sort of meditative about that and it's been really good for me and I really enjoy it. Yeah, I was doing a 
tough bit of a hill run. Oh, of course, uh, you're a, a you're a runner, ago, yes. And, and sort of feeling fe- feeling the pain in my chest and sort of feeling a bit sorry for myself and suddenly this kookaburra just lets out this most fantastic laugh and I just thought, oh, I, I can't be complaining right now. No. Life, life is pretty damn good yes. when I'm running in the Australian bush with a kookaburra. And the, the thing I try and it, when it's at its hardest and I'm feeling my oldest and my unfittest as those hills tend to teach you particularly... Madura, Mount Madura and Ainsley I've found. Um, it's that sense of, hey, I can do this, whether it's fast or slow, I'm doing mm, it and mm. I'm lucky to have my health and a body that allows me to yes. to do this. And there's something centering about that, um, that reminder that you're out here in this beautiful on this beautiful country with your health and your breathing and mm. your moving and you're lucky that you've got a body that lets you do that and mm, mm. um I find that is particularly um, grounding. Do you have any guilty pleasures? Chocolate. Easy. It's easy. I live, Dark, on, live on it. Uh, yeah, well, any, not, Things uh, added. not white chocolate. I'm not a fan of white chocolate, but I was recently at a chocolate store in the Canberra Centre here and they were asking people how often do you come, how often do you come here? And I felt quite confronted by that question um, because my answer my answer was far too revealing. Um, but I chocolate is um, yes um, one of the reasons I run probably. But yeah, definitely my guilty pleasure. And finally, Louise, what person or what experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? Oh, I think listening to me talk today you can probably guess the answer but my parents have absolutely been the touchstone for me around uh, the ethics that I think I have and the the way that I um, represent what I would um, consider to be the moral sort of touchstone that they've provided for me is yeah they've absolutely um, they're it for me in terms of what I run my mind around if I'm faced with a dilemma that I consider sort of challenges my ethics or requires me to consider um, what the ethical approach would be to an issue. And as a lawyer, sometimes you are faced with those challenges around not just your sort of professional ethics, but what what it means for you personally Mm. in your heart and in your spirit. And uh, my uh, parents absolutely provide their voices in my head, tell me what the approach should be and I'm very grateful for that. You, you actually consciously think at times what would mum and dad do in this situation? I, yeah, I do. Or what, more so what, not what they would do perhaps but what their expectation of me would be. Mm-hmm. And um, I, there's some lessons um, in life and some, some approaches that they took to us as parents that have really... Um, I guess shaped the way that I approach things. It was, you know, honesty was a big issue in our household and um, loyalty was um, a huge part of, I guess, what I witnessed them to live their life with that I consider to be uh, a value strong st- that I hold strongly. Um, so it's it's it's. It's more what I think they would expect me to do as as a professional and as a um, as a decent human being. Yeah, Louise Taylor, thank you for taking the time to share your wisdom and your stories on the Good Life podcast today. Thanks for having me, Andrew. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Good Life. 
We love getting feedback, so please leave us a rating or a comment on Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes. Next week, I'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.